Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Not often do you want chuckles during your prayer, but that felt like one of those times you want chuckles. And I heard a couple of people laugh after the Zephaniah reading somewhere over here. I won't call you out. Oh, but Chris will. Chris was like, it was Amy. Um, And now it is in perpetuity. Okay, good. Because there are, right? Like it gets done like, oh, you're not obedient and loving. Well, God will, the wrath of God will burn against you and destroy you. And the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, right? We get to, and even the lectionary, when they're putting it together, they're like, we need to include the letter to Thessalonica in there of, okay, God will not come to us in wrath, but in love. Uh, Because even the parable that Jesus tells today is one where you go, "Mm." and depending on what your experience is in the church, if you're like me, you feel an even deeper, because how often did we hear this parable read on Stewardship Sunday? We're getting ready to buy a building, do a building, it's end of year giving, and so we turn to the parable of the talents. Or there is a shortage of volunteers in the nursery. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, because... The unfortunate accident that talent and how we use it today, we've conflated the two. We tend to read it as like, oh, what talents do you bring? And so today is Stewardship Sunday. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. I told you all that just to let you know. No, it's, it's not. Because at the end of the day, those are actually very poor readings because they're isolated readings. They've read these stories the story of Jesus in isolation of what it is Jesus is trying to do, the moment that Jesus is teaching this, who he's teaching it to. Not only that, but we've also read in a very Western, capitalistic, consumeristic way, very dehumanizing way of reading these precious words of Jesus. That isn't to say that this is not a difficult parable. It it is. All of Jesus' parables are intended to unsettle us, but there's an unsettling and say the prodigal, the story of the prodigal children that feels warm and comfy. And then there's the unsettling that shows up in Jesus' parables like this one, especially the parables that he teaches toward the end of his life. In fact, in Matthew's gospel is Jesus, uh, and it's just packed full with parables of Jesus going, this is what the kingdom of God is like. But you'll notice they begin to change from, say, about chapter 13 to chapter 25, because you get the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Mm, I love mustard. Love mustard seeds. To all of a sudden, now the kingdom of God is like a master with slaves. You're like, what is happening? And well, in the time of Jesus' life, like he is beginning, and the gospels tell us, he is beginning to feel the anxiety and the pressure of what is coming. Fully human and fully God, which means that he did not walk into Jerusalem for the last time before his resurrection, going, here we go. I got this. The Palm Sunday gives us a false illusion of what Jesus would have experienced those days like. The people may have been singing singing Hosanna, but Jesus knew what was coming. He had already talked to Moses and Elijah about it. His father had let him in. He was beginning to let his own friends know, and they didn't even understand. He felt isolated and alone. Why, in John's gospel, he will look at them and say, you will all abandon me, but I am not alone. My, My father will be with me. And as he would come out, as he would come to discover at the foot of the cross, his mother would be with him as well. 
one of the few people to not abandon Jesus. So he's beginning to feel this pressure, so you hear it in his stories. They're incredibly apocalyptic. There's a sense of urgency that Jesus is beginning to feel, not only for the listeners, but also for his friends, who he will extend authority to take this good news to the nations. And he's feeling an urgency to get them ready. But he's still doing what it is he came to do. And part of that was to lovingly push back on the religious leaders of that day. And this parable is a harsh warning to those leaders. I think there are implications for me and you as well, but they are harsh. It's a harsh warning to those leaders in power. And why is it that Jesus is confronting them in this moment? And I think it's one of the central themes of this entire chapter of Matthew's gospel. What is Jesus trying to invite them to remember? Because we've talked about this before. Oftentimes, and it can become dangerously anti-Semitic the way we treat Pharisees in the scriptures. I think we have to be incredibly careful about how we handle them. Because at the end of the day, their motives, I think, at a very foundational level, were good. They longed for the people to worship God. But somewhere along the way, something happened. It became disordered. Somewhere along the way, they had forgotten something. And in that forgetfulness, it wasn't as easy as simply, hey, did you remember that you were supposed to pick this up from the store? Because in their forgetfulness, what they had begun to do, and this is actually one of the dangers of an unexamined life, that in our forgetfulness of what is real and good and beautiful and true, we begin to construct a life. We begin to construct habits. We begin to construct structures that live more fully into the lie that we believe, into the truth that we've forgotten. And that is what is true when Jesus arrives on the scene in the first century. He enters into a people being led by leaders who had forgotten. And what had they forgotten? Again, I have the spiritual gift of oversimplification, so here's what I would argue they forgot. They had forgotten that God was a God of abundant generosity and abundant goodness. They had forgotten, in the words of Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, the liturgy of abundance. But again, you hear that word, and you go, mm. Because if you just go this week and don't, I did for you. And you just search in whatever podcast platform you listen to, the parable of the talents, the sermon titles are atrocious. Atrocious. And one of them, and the unfortunate reality, and part of me just, well, I'm not going to say who's to blame, but Paul says our enemy is not flesh and blood. So I think it's the devil. How to live an abundant life. And I didn't have to get 10 minutes in to realize like, oh, this is some weird form of capitalism that's been baptized. That they had forgotten the generosity and the goodness of God. And so what they had done in forgetting that goodness and that generosity, God's instinctual heart for those on the margins, for the poor, for the suffering, for the broken, they had constructed an entire system outside of what God had wanted in order to reinforce that power and in order to reinforce that image of God. And so Jesus shows up. And one of the reasons why they kill him is because he has enfleshed the God they didn't think existed. They don't have a framework 
for Yahweh as Yahweh is, only as they hoped Yahweh would be. So when you come across difficult passages like this, Zephaniah, or this parable, in the rabbinic tradition, it's a tradition that when you come across a reading in the Hebrew scriptures, and I would also say this applies to maybe even the New Testament scriptures, that doesn't match up with who we understand God to be. And if you're like, well, how do we, but isn't this God? God, as we've said before, is Christ-like. And in God, there is no unchrist-likeness. I have this conversation with my daughters all the time where they go, but won't God be angry and want to kill us? And I go, can you imagine? Can you imagine Jesus doing that? And they go, well, no. I go, well, that's, then God wouldn't do that either. And and if you're sitting there going, well, what gives you the authority to say that about God? Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who said that. If you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen God, you've seen me. And so in the rabbinic tradition, when you come across these difficult texts, their encouragement, their wisdom is to keep going, to keep going deeper into whatever that reading is, whatever that passage is, that there is something there. God intends to teach us, even if the way of understanding at first is unsettling to us. In fact, you get this, especially in the ending of the story. You all just heard it. The master comes back, he rewards the first two. And then he looks at the third, and the third's like, I knew. And it's almost as if the third servant, the third slave, names what we're all feeling. And this isn't God. I knew you were a harsh taskmaster. So what does he do? He takes the talents, gives it to the one with the most talents, and then says, throw them out into the outer darkness. Now, we may understand This is an idea that a person who's concerned only about self-preservation and avoiding wrath shouldn't be entrusted with anything else. We may even understand how the talent would be taken from that person and given to someone else because of their poor stewardship. But then it's that, for me, especially all this week, it's that last step. Why does Jesus have to say, and throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth? Okay, let me remind us, this is a parable. It has been, in different corners of the church, made into a literal description of what will happen. I don't think Jesus' original hearers are listening to it in that way. Jesus isn't even telling it in that way. He's not giving us futuristic accounts of what will happen. It's a figurative story, and I think there's two reasons why it ends this way. First, Because again, Jesus is trying to shake up and unsettle those who are in power. And when you are so entrenched in a system you've helped create to protect your power, to dehumanize one another and to hold on to control, sometimes the only way that those leaders can be woken up is with a deeply unsettling story. Which is why one of our vocations as the people of God is to tell the whole story. Not just the parts that we like, not just the parts that we don't like, but the whole story. I think that's incredibly important just to make it contextual for us. I think that is important in a town like Charlottesville, that we tell the whole story. We love Charlottesville. First date was here. It was Mudhouse and then Christian's Pizza. Apricot scone and Christian's pizza. 
We love it. We always wanted to live here. Couldn't, couldn't believe that we were actually going to get to stay. We love this town. Shelby tells me all the time, just so you know, we're not moving. I was like, yeah, I'm good either. She goes, no, 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 we're not. You can do whatever you want. But I'm just letting you know, <laughs> if you want us, you're stuck here. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's good. We love it. And we love a lot of things about it. We love its location in regards to our family. Farther away from mine and closer to hers. We love the mountains. We love the four seasons. We love the wineries. It's a great town if you're a floral designer like my wife is. We love the food. We love the people. Our best friends are here. We put roots down here. We love it. We love the downtown mall. We love the restaurants, the food. But if we're not careful, that's not the whole story. We have to tell the whole story. It's not just what we love, but it's named the reality of how Charlottesville became like this. And at what cost? And at whose cost? We have to tell the whole story because otherwise we become so entrenched in our ways of understanding. In fact, I would argue all stories have their way of doing this. And so whatever position you hold on whatever topic, if we're not careful, we only listen to the stories of those who we agree with. We treat people like the Moth Radio Hour. I don't feel like listening to the story, so I'm just going to fast forward. I did that this week. And it wasn't because it was a bad story. It's just a story I didn't want to listen to because I disagreed with where they were coming from. I knew exactly where it was going, and I fast forwarded, and it was while I was doing the dishes. It was like my happy place, podcast dishes. And there was a moment where I had to go, what am I doing? I am habituated to fast forward through the stories of someone I don't agree with. And we all do that. We have the incredible ability to do that. But what would it look like for us to give space to just listen? Generous space and generous hospitality to just listen. To listen to the stories of the experiences of people of color. To give generous space to listen to women, to listen to someone who is transgender or queer, to listen, but to listen to everyone. We're all headed to Thanksgiving. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll turn my mic off for this one. To listen to both sides, to listen, and to give space and to be curious and to ask questions. Because friends, otherwise the danger becomes we make constructs of our lives. And it's not only dehumanizing to those we refuse to listen to, it dehumanizes us. It does great damage to our own selves to not give space and to not listen. Doesn't mean that what we're going to hear is easy. It doesn't mean if you've had any experience of shutting people's stories down, that they're going to want to share with you right away. And that's their prerogative. That's completely okay. But are we offering space? And in the moments where we don't handle stories well, are we doing the work of repair in order to come back around and go, I didn't handle that well. Stories are a sacred thing because you are sacred things. 
And so Jesus is attempting to unsettle a people who have constructed a way of life that leaves them in power and allows them to just flatten the other and not have to deal with it. And let's be honest, I don't blame them. That feels easier. Feels easier. But the second reason why it ends in this way is because outer darkness is a fitting description for where self-obsession lies and for where self-obsession leads. If you meet someone who's fully self-obsessed, they live their lives in great insecurity, rejecting others for not being good enough, all the while concerned that they are not good enough. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, sounds like a good way to describe the internal world of someone who's become self-obsessed. It's eating bread and only getting ashes, but the hunger never goes away. And Jesus is inviting them back. Back to what? Unfortunately, I have about two minutes and 12 pages, because that was just the first But what Jesus is inviting them to remember is the liturgy of abundance that is around them. Friends, do you know that billions of dollars go in to naming the scarcity in your life? Billions, with a B, of dollars go into naming the scarcity in your life and reminding you of that scarcity. Billions of dollars. It's called marketing and advertising. There's an algorithm for it. It rests in most of our pockets. We swim in the waters that tell us you aren't good enough, you haven't achieved enough, don't have enough money, there's not enough storage on your phone, and probably the darkest of all, that you are not enough. You are not enough. And if we're not careful, then this, the walking the Jesus way, the following Jesus, the worshiping God and worshiping with one another simply becomes a blip in our day, in our week, in our month of a space to be reformed, to be healed, to be invited in and reminded what reality is. The Israelites wrestle with this. They spend 400 years in Egypt. They come out more Egyptian than they do Israelite. And the first time we see scarcity arrive in the story is 47 chapters into Genesis when Pharaoh looks around and goes, there's not enough. And for 400 years, they are enslaved. And the gods of scarcity are all around them. And when they leave, part of the reasons why I don't give them too hard of a time in their wanderings and in their struggles is because for 400 years they have been formed by the gods of scarcity. So no wonder they go, are we we even supposed to be here? Shouldn't we go back? And what does God do? He destroys them all. No. They go, we should never come out here. Moses, you brought us out here to die. And I love Moses just goes, they're yours. You claimed them. (laughs) And what what does God do? He gives them water. He gives them bread. Friends, do you know when the bread stops? 
You know when manna stops? When they enter the promised land. God provides for them and nourishes for them out of God's own abundant life until they enter the promised land. We will eat bread and drink wine every week. Do you know when this will stop? When we're seated at the banquet supper of the Lamb. When we don't need to weekly remember, not just here, but in our bodies, our whole selves remember that in spite of being told we're not enough and we do not have enough. And I'm not neglecting the fact that some of us face immense hardship, immense need, but it doesn't change the reality that God is abundant. And for those of us who are not necessarily in need in the way that others are in need, if we're not careful, we construct a world where we leave those people in need. And so every single week we enter in, we eat and we drink and we smell and we see and we pray and we worship and we remember. And at times it is a remembering. The image I have is just sitting here, just sort of closed in on ourselves. And at times it is an act of defiance against the enemy that would say, you're not enough and there is not enough. And we walk in and we break bread and we dip it and we eat it, and we drink it as an act of defiance. As the swing of a hammer against the brittle night, and an enemy that would remind us in, the face of, in, the, in spite of all you face, where is your God? And we go here, and there, and everywhere. The way of Jesus is unsettling. But part of, in God's wisdom, God intended for this way to be unsettled is by people who were willing to be vulnerable enough to be unsettled. And then with God and discernment and wisdom and grace and compassion and love to unsettle the world by the way we live. To unsettle the world by the way we live. Here's how I know this, because of how Jesus enters the world and the song of his mother. We'll read the Magnificent in Advent, and if we're not careful, it's a really sweet song. And I think we have an image of Mary that's doughy-eyed singing this song. Do you know that it's a rebellious war song against the powers that would be it's a song of courage that she picks up from other courageous women like Hannah. She sings about neighborliness, about how God brings down the mighty from their thrones and lifts up the lowly. About how God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. It's a dangerous song. And it's the song that God, it's his entrance music. It's what he enters to. It is dangerous. 
and it is life, and it is good, and it is abundant. It is abundant. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.